Good morning. Mike mentioned it just a minute ago about this rain. This is great, isn't it? It's been so hot and so dry just to get some relief from the heat, a little moisture for the ground, the trees and the leaves and the, the grass and the flowers will maybe have a, a good drink over the next few days. I was thinking about tomorrow, um, tomorrow's Labor Day, and I know this has something to do with labor unions and things like that, but it's kind of confusing to me because is it a holiday for labor or is it a holiday from labor? I guess it's all in your perspective or your attitude or your frame of mind. If you're working tomorrow, it's a holiday for labor. And if you're not, it's a holiday from labor. I personally don't have to work, so in my case, it's a holiday from labor. Think about this, and many of us have been there. You're planning a trip. You're on vacation. You're getting ready to leave. You've got the car all packed. You're all ready to go. And you're going someplace that you've never been before. You don't, the, the path's not really perfect for you. You're not really sure. You're a little nervous about it. And you get all ready, and you leave. And you're driving down the road, and things are going pretty well. A couple hours later, it's still going pretty well. The kids are quiet. The car's running well. You actually get a chance to have a conversation with your wife. <coughs> Next thing you know, as you're traveling along, you come to a big city. You've never been to this city before. Big cities can be confusing. Lots of streets, lots of roads, eight-lane, ten-lane highways. You're traveling along and you just want to get through it. You just want to get to the other side. And when you do, you're like, I made it. And then your wife says, did we miss our turn? <laughs> no. No, we couldn't have. I've got it under control. I know where I'm going. We're right. We're right where we should be. I'm not worried about it. Well, a few minutes later, the next thing you know, pow, flat tire. Oh, great. Now you're concerned about the spare. You didn't check before you left. So you pull over. You take care of that situation. You're not really thrilled about it, but that's where you're at. In this short little story here, we just experienced three separate emotions or attitudes that we're going to talk a little bit about today. Frames of mind, if you will. The first is contentment. You're traveling along, things are going well, cars running good, kids are quiet, you're content, you're happy, you're satisfied. Next thing you know, you're on the wrong path, you're on the wrong road, but you're not worried about it. You're not concerned, you got it under control, you're all right, you can, you can handle this. You, come, you become complacent about the situation. And then the flat tire. Well, now you're unhappy. Now you're not satisfied. You might say that you're discontent. <clears throat> These are some areas of our lives that I think we deal with every day. Contentment, complacency, discontentment. This is a very broad-reaching subject. There's a lot of factors involved here, and 
We only have a short time this morning to go through all these, so we're just going to look at a few explanations. We're going to look at a few verses. Um, but a couple of things I thought about, some questions that arose is, how do I become content? And do I have a responsibility to be content? And what causes me to be discontent? Why does that happen? What's the outcome? What's the result? What's the consequence of being discontent? And then complacency is something I've dealt with for a long time in my life. (coughs) And can this be confused? Can complacency be confused with contentment? And if it is, is that dangerous? I believe it is. First of all, we're going to take a look at complacency because this is what's closest to my heart. The dictionary defines complacency as an indifference. It's being idle, being lazy, a smugness. It's neglectful. It's kind of a whatever attitude. And as I said before, can this be confused with contentment? And I believe it can. And we need to be careful of that. The first verse I want to take a look at here is in Ecclesiastes. It's 10.18, and I love Solomon's writings because he really gets to the point. He, he, doesn't, he cuts to the chase, so to speak. And he says, Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. Now, more than likely, what Solomon's referring to here is a kingdom. And a king who's in charge of this kingdom who's not doing what he should be doing. He's lazy. He's idle. He's let things go. He's not fulfilling his responsibilities here. And through his idleness, he's causing the kingdom to slowly decay, to fall apart. He's not concerned. He doesn't care. This is something that we really need to be aware of and be concerned about in our lives. As I thought about this, too, I thought about through through U.S. history, there's been many great military leaders. Washington and further down the line, MacArthur, Patton, Eisenhower, these were great generals in the armies, great military minds. And because of men like these, we live in a free country. Because they weren't idle, they weren't lazy, they didn't neglect their duties. They stayed on top of things, so to speak. We prosper. But what would have happened? What could have happened if they didn't? What could have happened if they became lazy or they became idle and they did neglect their duties? Picture this. That fateful night, the night of the Delaware crossing, and Washington's, he's sitting at home with Martha. And he's thinking about this whole thing. He's, he's relaxed. He's, he's sitting in front of the fire. He's got his feet up. He's got his favorite sweater on. He's got a bowl of cheese doodles right beside him there. And he says, Martha, you know, it's awful cold out there tonight. You know, it's snowy. It's nasty. It's rainy. I don't really think I want to do this. I don't really think I want to uh, go out there tonight. Besides, my boots have a hole in them. 
And I, I get sick riding in the boat. I think I'm just going to stay home tonight. I'm going to let those younger guys handle this situation. I don't, I don't feel like doing it. What would have happened? Of course, we don't know because that's not what happened. That's not the case. But what, what could have happened? Possibly, we'd still be living under British rule. Because Washington fulfilled his responsibilities. He wasn't idle. He wasn't lazy. He didn't do what the king, who I just talked about, was doing. Once again, we live in a free country. We can prosper from that. We can thank him for that. And those other gentlemen I spoke of, MacArthur, Patton, Eisenhower, all those, all those great minds, because they did what they were supposed to do, what they were called to do, their responsibilities. They fulfilled them. They weren't idle. They weren't lazy. Once again, we have freedom. <coughs> Excuse me. I also see in this verse, it's a call to us, gentlemen, as fathers and as husbands. Because our kingdom, it's our families. It's our wives and our children. And we're not to be lacking in our responsibilities. We can't allow our kingdom to decay. Satan would like nothing better than to see or to cause our families to come apart. And if we give him that edge, if we give him that little bit of idleness or that little bit of laziness or whatever it may be that he can, it doesn't take much, he'll get in and he'll wreak havoc in our lives. So we need to remember that. We need to think about that, guys. And also, as I thought about this, the literal sense of this verse in the, the house and the building and the decay, it brought a good word picture to mind to me. Has anyone ever been out in the country? You're driving around and you, you come across an old barn or an old house that's sitting out in a field and it's, it's weather-beaten, the paint's gone, it's, the wood's rotting, it's just... It's about ready to fall down. It's about ready to collapse at any minute. And you look at that and you think about it. And there's only one reason that it's like that. It's because it's been neglected. Somebody has given up on it. They've, their responsibilities are gone. They don't, they don't care anymore. They're not taking care of it anymore. There hasn't been any maintenance done for a long time on this house or this barn. And when I think about maintenance, because I come from an automobile background, that's one of the things that we preach in our service department, no pun intended, is maintenance, taking care of your vehicle. Changing the fluids, checking the belts, the hoses, the brakes. These are just things that when you do to your car or your truck, it just prolong the life. It just makes it run a little bit better. And quite honestly, if it's not running right and you don't attend to it, you neglect, it's not going to get any better. Experience tells me that things don't 
repair themselves. And many of us may be in that, have been in that position before. So when I thought about that again, I thought about our relationship with God. And you know, our relationship with God needs maintenance as well. We have to stay focused. We have to stay on top of our relationship with God. And by staying in His Word, by studying, and by meeting with other Christians, fellowshipping, and staying focused on Him, that's how we maintain our relationship. When our relationship with Him needs repair, or it needs maintenance, this is our maintenance manual. This is our service manual, if you will. This is where we go to find the answers to the problems that we have in our lives. When we start to feel complacent, or we start to become idle, or we get lazy, this is where we need to go, right here. Another example of this complacency or idleness is in 2 Thessalonians. It's chapter 3, and it's verses 10 through 11. And Paul is basically warning the Thessalonians about this specific subject. He says, beginning in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, do not grow weary in doing good. Now Paul's not saying here that the needy should not be helped. In fact... He was very adamant about helping the needy, the truly needy. In 1 Timothy, he talks about widows and orphans and handicapped and how they need help, they truly need help, because they can't take care of themselves in most cases. And he was very adamant about the church leading the way. The church should be at the forefront of taking responsibility for helping these people out. He was addressing believers in Thessalonica who were being idle. They were being inactive. They were lazy. And he specifically says, believers, they weren't doing their jobs. They'd quit. For whatever reason, they'd given up on their responsibilities. And they were allowing the other believers who were doing their jobs, who were working, and were maintaining their responsibilities to take care of them. And if that's not bad enough, in verse 11, he tells us that they were disorderly, and they were becoming busybodies. They were nosy. It wasn't bad enough that they weren't fulfilling their own responsibilities, but they were getting in everyone else's way. They were interfering with those who really were trying to do what was right. 
And as I thought about this too, many of us may have had this situation at work where you work with someone who maybe tends to fall in that category. They don't, they don't seem to be fulfilling their end of their job. They're not working like they should be. They may be unequal, they may be paid the same, but yet they don't seem to be doing what they're supposed to be doing, and it frustrates you. I know in particular, I won't mention any names, but <laughs> we have a, a salesman at work who he sells used cars, and our used car building is across the street from the main facility. And many times, I've seen him in the cashier's office talking to the cashier, who is a young, single lady. And he's a sort of a young, single man. And I'm sure there's a reason that he's over there. But he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and he's interfering with what she's supposed to be doing. And to, and, and to make it even worse is I've heard him say he's just not making any money. And I want to say, you know, I haven't seen too many people looking for used cars in the cashier's office. <laughs> They're across the street where the used cars are. You're supposed to be over there doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be fulfilling your responsibilities in your area. So when Paul writes this, then, he doesn't say, hey, you know, maybe you guys, maybe you ought to think about going back to work and taking care of yourselves. Now, he doesn't give them an option, does he? He says, we exhort you and command you through our Lord Jesus Christ to work in quietness and eat their own bread. He's not giving them an option, is he? He's saying, this is your responsibility. This is what you should be doing. Work in quietness. Eat your own bread. Provide for yourself. You're capable of doing it. Don't be idle. Don't be lazy. Don't be complacent. Do what you're supposed to do. <clears throat> they didn't realize that what was about to happen was that the believers who were fulfilling their responsibilities and, and taking care of the, the, non, the, the other believers that weren't, were getting tired of it. They were fed up. They just about had enough. They were done. They were going to cut it off. No more. We're not going to give you any more support. All support's gone. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. Even though there are some out there who aren't fulfilling their responsibilities, there are still those who are Needy. Don't cut the support off. They were going to give it up, all their charity. And to think about it, if we put ourselves in that position, we may do the same thing. At least we may think about doing the same thing. We may say, we've had enough. <clears throat> Remember a few years ago, and this, this bothered me at the time, there was a controversy within the United Way. This, this organization that is supposed to be maintaining and supporting and helping all these groups throughout the whole country and even the world, in our um, organization in the United States, there was a, a CEO or whatever you want to call it at the top who was making a fortune. Just, and it caused a big controversy because the money uh, or some of the money that was donated to this organization was going right into... I believe it was her pocket. 
so me, as a person that was donating to the United Way, stopped. I decided I'm not, I'm not giving my money to an organization that is supposed to be taking care of people, but the money's going into the pocket of, of an administrator. It just it frustrated me. And this is the situation here, basically. It's the same thing that's going to happen here. They're going to cut it off. And I think Paul senses this is going to happen. So in verse 13, he says, But as for you, brethren, you brothers, you who are doing the right thing, you who are doing the do, you're being responsible, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't give up. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Mind your responsibilities. Because as Christians, we have a responsibility to help the needy. And there were still those who really did need help. And he's telling them that we can't let the laziness or the idleness of some cause us or keep us from doing what we know our responsibilities are. We should keep on doing the do. The next thing we're going to take a look at here, the next attitude, frame of mind, is discontent or discontentment. <clears throat> the dictionary again defines this as being unhappy, unsatisfied, an uneasiness of mind. And I thought about that. Are there consequences again of being discontent? And I think as we visit here for a minute, we'll see what those are. In Genesis 3, it's the story of Adam and Eve. We all know the story. And I like to call this kind of a breach of contentment. And this also focuses on temptation because it was a big factor here. But Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had everything they needed. They had food. They had drink. It was a beautiful place. God had provided it for them. He'd given them everything that they needed. He even fellowshiped with them there. They had his full attention. There wasn't anyone else. It was just them. We don't have that luxury. We can still have that relationship with him. But they had it good. Were they content? No, they weren't. The only exclusion that he told them and that he gave them was the tree of life. And he told them to have nothing to do with the tree of life. At that point, they could have just let things go. They could have listened to God. They could have been obedient. <clears throat> they could have been satisfied. They could have been content. They should have been content. Once again, Satan rears his ugly head. And he knows where they're weak. He knows where their temptation lies. So he approaches Eve. And once again, we know the story. He tempts her. He gets her to eat. And then she gives some to Adam, and he eats. And at that point, their eyes were open. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed. Separation from God. Sin was ushered into the world. Pain and suffering. 
because of that brief moment, that brief lack of contentment or discontentment, and allowing Satan to hit them where they were weak, their lives and our lives were changed forever. And so was the rest of creation. And we still feel it today. You know, their discontentment, once again, and Satan's taking advantage of their weakness resulted in the world we live in today. It's a sinful world. Does anyone like to window shop? See a few heads shaking out there. You're just looking. You like to go out and see what's out there, see what's new, see what's the latest and the greatest, state of the art, so to speak. I still don't know what that means, but they say it a lot. So you go out, you have no intention of buying anything. You're just going to go out and look, right? You're going to go out and do some window shopping. Something catches your eye. Remember, you had no intention of buying anything. And the next thing you know, you're walking out of the store. You've got a new sweater or a new pair of shoes or whatever it may be. And by the time you hit the front door, you're already starting to feel a little guilty. <clears throat> by the time you get home, it's a full-blown guilt trip. You went in satisfied. I'm just going to look. I'm not going to buy anything. I don't need anything. And you came out thinking that you would be satisfied with what you purchased, but instead you were dissatisfied. You were unhappy. You were discontent. You were ashamed. Maybe even embarrassed. You got something that you thought would make you happy only to realize it made you miserable. I remember one time I <coughs> bought a truck, and it wasn't a particularly nice truck. In fact, it was a particularly bad truck. And I probably should have thought twice about it, but I wasn't content. I bought it, and I paid for it for several months. And I only drove it for several months. And then I sold it and lost money on it and took my loss and went from there. It could have been a lot worse, but it was the fact that I, I wasn't content. I wasn't happy. I had a vehicle. It wasn't good enough. There's another example of our discontentment in here or a breach of contentment that I thought about. This comes from Exodus. Once again, we all know the story. It's the Israelites. God had brought them from bondage. He'd freed them. They were free. And in this verse, it was not too long after they'd crossed the Red Sea. Just a month or so after they'd been released. We're talking about Chapter 15, in verse 22, and it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and there they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. 
And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. So therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. And he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. <clears throat> and we're dealing with a lack of trust here, but it's also a discontentment. They didn't trust in God. He just released them. He just brought them from bondage for all those years, all those generations that had been captive in Egypt. And they were free. It was a miracle. Now, all of a sudden, they're complaining. They're not happy. They're not content. They're not satisfied. They think that Moses has led them out in the wilderness to die. And they had God's blessing. He wasn't going to let them die of thirst, but they wouldn't wait. So Moses interceded. And in verse 25, it says, He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he made the water sweet. It seems to me that they were already getting on God's bad side. And it says He tested them. He was going to see if they could be satisfied or they could be content. And he warns them in verse 26. He says, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right, keep his commandments and his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I brought on the Egyptians. And remember the diseases, remember the curses. And you would have thought, or you would think, at that point, that they would have said, okay, Lord, whatever you say. But not so. I mean, we know the story again. And in chapter 16, in verse 2, it says, The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of mead and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota each day, once again, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Are they going to be happy now? Are they going to be discontent? Are they, are they going to be satisfied? This time... Moses didn't intercede. God came to him, which may be an inkling again that he's getting a little fed up with these Israelites. Again, they complain. They didn't have enough food. And he says in verse 4, he's going to test them again. He's giving them again the chance to do what's right, to be obedient, to be satisfied. 
put their discontentment aside. And again, we think, that should do it. But as we know, it didn't. And they still complained later on. And I'm not going to go into that right now, but we know that they were disobedient. We know that they were discontent. They never really figured it out, I guess. They never got it. So what was their reward? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. It never got any better for them. At least for those who had been in that generation. The ones that had caused the problems, the ones that had spoke out the most, they died. They, didn't, they never made it to the Holy Land or the, the Promised Land. That was their reward. That was the consequences of their discontentment and their dissatisfaction, their disobedience. And there's a lot more in here about that, but in, in lieu of time, um, we're going to go on. But if you get a chance sometime and you're interested in this subject, uh, there's plenty, there's plenty of, of passages and plenty of studies in there. But I also thought about, as I close this section, a book that was written by Carl Sewell, who many of you may or may not know who he is, but Carl Sewell owns one of the most profitable Cadillac automobile dealerships in the country. And it's in Texas. Very successful businessman. I don't know where he stands spiritually. I have no clue. But in this book, he wrote about his business and taking care of his business and and motivating people and all these other aspects. He talks about customers. And specifically in one section of that chapter, he talks about what to do with customers who are unsatisfied or they're discontent. And he realizes that there's going to be some people that you're just not going to satisfy. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, they're not going to be happy with the situation. And in his case, what they do is they terminate their relationship. He actually has an agreement or a contract, if you will, that's written up and in a nutshell says that you, Mr. Customer, are not to come back to my dealership anymore for whatever reason, you know, and I promise on my end that I'll never pursue you for any reason and the relationship is done. You sign it, I'll sign it, and you're gone. I don't want you back. And that sounds harsh when you think about it because in the business world, customers mean everything. But he understands, unfortunately, that there are some that, we, that are just not going to be satisfied. And to cut his loss, and if there's someone that, that, that absolutely will not be satisfied no matter what you do, what's the point in keeping them as a customer? Now, with that being said, they're discontent, they're unhappy. Nothing's going to change no matter what. Let's not be that way. <clears throat> Lastly, here we want to talk a little bit about contentment or to be content. The dictionary defines content as to be happy, to be satisfied, self-sufficient. So what does it mean to be content? You think about that. Proverbs 16.8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 
And as I thought about that, the first thing that popped into my head was this situation that many of us are very, very familiar with in David Wittig, who was then the CEO or chairman of the board of the former Westar Energy, a.k.a. KPNL, a.k.a. Western Resources. <clears throat> I don't know much about the man myself, particularly, but I do know that people said that he was a big hit on Wall Street. He was a very excellent businessman, had a, had a good business sense. He was good at what he did. I thought, wow, he's good at what he did. What he did was take one of the strongest utility companies in the country and almost run it in the ground. And now he's, we know the story now, he's been indicted and there's some things and I'm not going to get into that, but it was greed, I believe. It was, it was a self-motivation to prosper himself. And it appears all personal gain We should be happy with whatever we have as long as it's gained honestly. Be content with our honest gain. If we have little, great. If we have a lot, that's okay too. If it's honestly. <laughs> okay. Ecclesiastes 2.24, Solomon, I love Solomon's writing once again. He, he gets right to the point, as we talked about earlier. He says, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Now think about that. Even though our lives are temporary here on this earth, they're, they're, they're very temporal. They're very short-lived. There's still so much that we should enjoy. Simple things, as Solomon says, a good meal, a drink, taking pride in your work, working hard. These are rewards from God for doing a good job in a sinful world. Making the best of what we have. And if we compare our lives to some of these other countries that we hear about, some of the countries and the missionaries that we support, if we compare our lives here in the United States to theirs, well, there's no comparison. We've got it pretty good here. We've got it pretty good. Move on here. Paul, who I think is the master of contentment, after everything that happened to him, we might feel that he had grounds to complain or at least explain his dissatisfaction with his situation. I mean, we know the story. He'd been beaten. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been stoned, shipwrecked, and all for the sake of Christ. Listen to what he says. And remember, he's writing this from a prison cell. In Philippians 4.13, 4.11-13, I'm sorry, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. 
Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And remember, as I said, his situation at this time wasn't real good. He was in prison, and he was writing this letter. And he was in prison for no more than just proclaiming Christ. And maybe he'd suffered at that point. He could have been beaten. He doesn't really say, but at any other time we know that he had. And yet, he says, he's learned to be content in whatever state that I'm in. And he's not talking about Georgia or Florida. He's talking about his physical state that he's in right at the time. Could we say that? And if we did, would we mean it? Think about our situations right now. Is that how we feel? He says he knows how to be abased. He knows how to bound. He knows how to live humbly, and he knows how to live prosperously. He was humble at the time. He didn't have much. He was in prison. Remember before, Paul was um, probably a well-to-do person in his former life, probably came from a well-to-do family. They had money. They were prosperous. He knew what it was like to live that way. He also knew what it's like to live on the other side of that now. He says he knew how to be full and he knew how to be hungry. He knew what it was like to have more than enough. And he also knew what it was like to have barely enough. He'd been the gamut both, both ways. And many of us may have been there too. He was used, he was used to suffering. And he was content. But he tells us in verse 13, first of all, he says that he's done all of these things. And we have no doubt that he's done them because we know he did. But then he tells us the secret of that in verse 13. And he says, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Or we could substitute, I can withstand all these things through Christ who strengthens me. There's the key. It's not our own ability. It's not our own personal desire or personal want. It's Christ. Whatever situation we may be in, however painful it may be, whatever pressure we're under, we can be content in knowing that through Christ we can withstand, we can survive, we can outlast. We can do all things through Him because He's the one that's given us the strength. And Jesus should be the center of our contentment. Okay, we'll look at one more passage. Paul again writing 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 6 through 10 he says now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. <clears throat> this is some instruction from Paul to Timothy, because Timothy is out on his own right now. Timothy was a young man. And uh, back in those times, as a young man, uh, he may not have been taken as seriously because of his age. We studied this a while back in our men's group. But Paul's telling him that being godly is the most important thing here. Okay, some of the people that Timothy was dealing with at that time, some of the Pharisees possibly, were saying that being godly was a means of gain. Paul wanted to make sure that he instructed him that that's not the case. Having a relationship without, <clears throat> excuse me, having a relationship with God without any monetary goals in mind was true contentment. All you were expecting was that relationship with Christ. In verse 7, he says, we've brought nothing in and we can take nothing out. I think about that. It doesn't matter if you were born to a wealthy family or if you were born to a poor family. When you came into this world, you had nothing. You couldn't even say you had the shirt on your back. And then he says, you can carry nothing out. We think about that. What's the old saying? You can't take it with you when you go. We've all heard that. That's true. I heard someone in a song one time say that it's not, it's not what you take with you when you go, but, what it's, but it's what you leave behind while you're here. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That kind of hits home. In verse 8, Paul's saying food, having food and clothes is enough. It's the basic necessities. That's all he needed, food and clothes. Once again, is that where we're at? As I thought about this, let's say you take out a piece of paper and make two columns. The heading of one column is needs. These are my needs. On the other column, these are my wants. Just picture that for a minute. And when you're finished with that, which column is longer. Which column has more items in it? Finally, Paul has a warning in verse 9 through 10. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils, and because of which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Once again, I can go back to the story of David Wittig, and I can see where, because of greed, possibly, or his own personal gains, he's been pierced. He's pierced himself. He's going to be possibly in jail for a while. This will cause problems in our personal lives, family and friends. But most importantly, this will cause separation from God. Money and material possessions can't replace God in our lives. Charlie Daniels wrote a song, and I don't know if any of you have heard any of his Christian um, recordings. They're very good, by the way. 
But this song is titled, Praying to the Wrong God. And in this song, there's a verse that says, Your Bible is your checkbook, and your church is your bank. And I thought about that, and that's how many people live today. Their, their material possessions, their wealth, their, their things are their gods. Simple things. I heard someone say one time that it's the simple things in life that bring true happiness. Simple things like trees and flowers and the clouds in the sky. And these are things that we have absolutely nothing to do with. And we couldn't if we wanted to. The crystal clear lake in the mountains. And the list can go on and on and on. You can fill in your own blanks. The point is, God said, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. Contentment begins with God. Contentment ends with God. Our relationship with Him now while we're here on this earth is the most important thing that we can, that we can have. And, and because of that, then everything else in our lives will fall together. Before I close here, I just want to pose a quick question. And this goes right back to our relationship with God. And it's what does our relationship with Him look like? If we were going to place it in a category of these things that I've been speaking of here, what would it fall in? Would it be in the category of contentment? Are we content with our relationship with Him? Would it fall in the category of complacency? Would it fall in the category of discontent? And if it happens to fall in one of the last two, what do we need to do to change it? What can we do? Here's one of the answers right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your provisions for us. And as we sung the song earlier, Jehovah Jireh, the verse says that my God shall supply all my needs. And we know that to be true. Lord, we know that, that you love us and you want us to have a, excuse me, have a fulfilling life. Jesus said that he not only came to give life, but life more abundantly. And that's where you want us to be. But Lord, that abundance and that contentment comes from that relationship with you. Father, may we strive every day to build that relationship and to grow that relationship and to keep it strong and to not allow our discontentment or our complacency or our idleness or our laziness to cause separation from you. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Father, for those many blessings in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.